Well, good morning, brethren, and what a joy it is to be with you again on the Lord's Day. Just as I was thinking about this passage this week, just thinking about how applicable it is to each and every one of our lives, including my own, because James is transitioning now from dealing with the nature of the tongue and what we say and how it demonstrates our faith and his, and his call to speak things that are noble and pure and holy and basically bless others as we bless God. In other words, treat others with the same way we would treat God with our tongues, with our mouths. Well, he transitions to the way we think because what we think determines what we do and what we think determines what we say. And James argues in this passage, he's arguing that there is a test of true wisdom. If you ask many people on the street today, well, what is wisdom? There's, there's really two responses that you'll get. You'll get the response that, well, it's, it's learning. It's, I've gone to school and I, I've gained a bit of knowledge. Or they'll say, it's a particular person that's a specialist in a particular field. And you see this on the news, a particular event, something happens, they'll, they'll ask a special guest to come on that has a special bit of knowledge about a particular issue. Well, the other way that people think of wisdom is they think of it as philosophy, uh, understanding the, the deep things of life, you know, where we came from, what's man's purpose, what's our destiny. Why is there evil in the world? They think of wisdom as the ability to answer those questions. And you, you see examples of, of this in the, in the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, philosoph- uh, Aristotle. you see Socrates and, and the like. Well, the Hebrews had the real idea of wisdom, and it's a wisdom that comes from the Lord. And they understood that true wisdom is God-given. It's a gift. And they understood that the wisdom in its basic sense is taking what we know about God and living it out in our lives. It's taking our, our understanding of God's Word and applying it practically speaking in what we say and what we do. And so what we see in our world, and this is the dichotomy that James makes this morning, as we'll look at in James chapter 3, he makes the division, he says there's only two types of wisdom. And we've noticed that James is continuing this type of dichotomy. If you remember, there's a, there's a doer of the word, there's a hearer of the word, and then there's the person that has deluded themselves. There's a person that responds appropriately in trials and grows and endures and becomes a mature Christian in their faith, and there's a person who does not. There's a person that that claims they're a Christian, but yet their life doesn't show it. They're really not. There's a person that that speaks things that are appropriate, that out of a, a redeemed heart with their tongues, and then there's a person that does not. James James loves to draw these these contrasts. In fact, he warns the believers in chapter 1 about being double-minded. Well, James attacks this worldly wisdom just as much as he promotes a godly wisdom. Because he knows that worldly wisdom is bankrupt. It is good for nothing. 
And so James says in this passage we're going to look at today, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, that godly wisdom produces godly behavior. There's a difference, and you can clearly see the types of wisdom. You see how people think by how they live their lives. So he draws that contrast between worldly wisdom and true godly wisdom. And I've titled my sermon today, it's out of this message, The Test of True Wisdom. And so the question for each one of us as we're going to be looking at this passage is, is do you live by true godly wisdom or do you accept the wisdom of this world? Now let's go ahead and look at the passage and, and then we're going to dig in this morning. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good behavior in deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we're looking at this morning the test of true wisdom. The wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. Pretty simple in its division. James is following a very simple outline this morning. So shall we. So the first point is the test of true wisdom. James asked this rhetorical question. He's addressing this to the congregations, the churches that he's writing to. Who among you is wise and understanding? Well, wisdom, like I said before, is a, it's a moral insight. It's skill in applying God's Word, your, your knowledge of who God is to the practical areas of your life. And he said this knowledge or this comes from a personal knowledge of God. This wisdom comes from knowing who God is. James actually has already told us once in James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, But if any one of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But this understanding is, it goes along with that wisdom. The understanding is be able to evaluate life in light of the truth. Be able to look around at the events of your life, the circumstances, and, and evaluate that. To judge those things, to look at those things and, and, and appraise those things. And see how do they fit within the truth. Because the truth is the reality of things according to God. It's the way God views things. We read about events in our world. How does, that, how do, how does your, your mindset filter those things with the Word of God? Does the ex- Word of God explain those things to you? And that's understanding. And that's wisdom. James ties these two together. It's able to use the knowledge of God's Word to to evaluate everything in your life, relationships, circumstances. Proverbs 4, 7 says that the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. 
And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Proverbs 2, 6, For the Lord gives wisdom out of His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 24 says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So wisdom comes from God. Now, one of the most important passages in Scripture regarding wisdom is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. And I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because I'd like to look at this section, because it elaborates, Paul elaborates on what is true wisdom and the contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. Because like I said, there's only two types of wisdom. Now, Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So Paul starts out with these Corinthians who they love wisdom. They love the philosophical thinking. They're Greeks after all. And they they view themselves as, as a little Athens. And Paul says, look, the wisdom of God cannot know God. The wisdom of God starts out from, sorry, the wisdom of man cannot know God. The wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world, starts out with the premise that God doesn't exist, or it starts out with the premise that the God of the Bible is not real, and it looks to understand everything apart from God. It's essentially humanistic, right? The wisdom of man hasn't changed. It starts with that premise. It doesn't look to the the Bible and God's revelation of Himself in the Scriptures. It looks to reason, experience, emotion, to determine the fundamental things of life. And Paul continues, he says, The Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, that's us, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Christ is wisdom. To understand the true nature and the true reality of things, you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Truth is, is the reality of this world as God sees it. Christ is the, the embodiment of God in all who He is. You want to know this world, you want to know man's condition, then you want to read the Scriptures. Jesus says in John 17, 17, Lord, he's praying for believers. He says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God testifies to who Christ is, what he's done. It testifies to what? To the truth, the reality that of everything, man's condition, man's need for salvation. 
And Paul continues, and if you look down, you flip a page in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, uh, let's start at verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, that we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers has, of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would have cru- not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Crawl is drawing that contrast again between worldly wisdom and how people on their own apart from God, cannot understand the truth. They cannot understand the true reality of things. They cannot understand Jesus Christ. Can't understand, and they can't know God. In fact, Paul elaborates on that very point in verse 9, and he says, "...the things which the eye has not seen, and the ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who have loved Him." Verse 10, for to us, us believers, God revealed them through the Spirit. All those things that God has prepared for for us He loves. He's revealed to us His wisdom through the Spirit of God. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except his own spirit within him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Holy Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So God gives us wisdom. He gives us knowledge to His people alone. We can understand the truth. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And He says in verse 13, "...which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom." but in those taught by the Spirit, commanding spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And this is a key verse. But a natural man, an unsaved person, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, what? Understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, who is believer, appraises, judge, evaluates All things, and he is not evaluated by anyone except for Christ. And then Paul continues and says that, Who has known the mind of the Lord? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul's whole point in all of that is that you can't know God through human wisdom. You can't know God apart from the Holy Spirit working in your heart to reveal truth. Man may stumble at times over aspects of the truth. But he cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. He cannot know the truth. He cannot have true wisdom apart from the Holy Spirit working in his heart. Brethren, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, your wisdom is essentially humanistic. And that's, now let's go back to James. Because now that we've laid that foundation and we see that the only two types of wisdom are God's wisdom or man's wisdom, James draws this out. 
Because James is dealing with the test of wisdom, the, the results of wisdom. We know that true wisdom is found in Christ alone. He lived out the Proverbs perfectly in a way that we never could. The truth is reality as God sees it, and, and Christ lived out God's truth perfectly because He is the truth. He is wisdom. Brethren, I encourage you as you grow in your understanding of God's Word, pray for wisdom. You have the Holy Spirit that, that teaches you the mind of Christ. We have God's Word that, that reveals His character and His nature, His special revelation. God wants to know you. He wants to be in that deep relationship with you. And He's promised to give you good things. Pray for that wisdom. Ask God. But James continues, says, Who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior and his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I love James. He says, basically, prove it. You say you have wisdom, then let me see it. Show me. He's demanding an effective demonstration of that wisdom in your life. Anybody can, can claim theological knowledge, just like anybody can claim to be a Christian. And James says, look, give me proof. And what is that proof? That proof is what? Good behavior. The good word there is good, which is it's noble, attractive. It's according to Scripture. It comes naturally to the Christian. That good behavior comes out of redeemed life. That behavior is just how we deal with our circumstances. You know, a merchant from a small Danish town visited New York many years ago on a holiday. And what impressed him as he looked in all these store windows was just how beautiful and clean they were in these display windows. And he thought about his own dingy window back in Denmark and when he got back, the first thing he did was clean, clean the window. And he watched over the next few weeks and months as his sales increased because people who could come by his shop could actually see in and see the goods that he had within his shop. His windows were no longer dingy. Well, brethren, the Christian life, we must have the, the window to our souls opened in the sense that how we live shows others what's really inside. We must clearly show that we live not by the world's wisdom, but by God's wisdom. Not only does he say your behavior is approved, but he says those, those deeds should be done in the gentleness of wisdom. The word gentleness there is translated in different versions as humility or meekness. It's a, it's a conduct of our life done in a humble spirit. It's a characteristic of true wisdom. It's the opposite of wanting your own way. You don't need to contend with others for, for recognition. You're not always looking for that pat on the back. It's an attitude that, that produces gentleness in your heart and in how you treat others. Does that word gentleness, does that characterize you? When people describe you as a gentle person, a humble person. Ultimately, humility is understanding your, your own lack of worth before the Lord, that, that God didn't you don't deserve anything. That you didn't deserve God's salvation. 
that God loved you while you were his enemy, while you were still a sinner. And when you think about your unworthiness before a holy and majestic God, then that should give you an attitude, a proper attitude towards others. Because if you're thinking highly of yourself, you're forgetting how low you really are compared to God. James says true wisdom doesn't have that haughty spirit. It's a gentle spirit. True wisdom produces humility, produces good behavior. And James calls on these churches to show. Show the wisdom that they claim they have by by how they conduct their lives. True godly wisdom is demonstrated, brethren, in your good deeds, your good behavior, and in your humility. James continues and he says, look, there's a wisdom that's not from God. There's a worldly wisdom. It's a a wisdom from below and brings us to our second point in verse 14 through 16. And he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. James, first of all, addresses what's in the heart. He said, if you've got bitter jealousy, bitter envy in some translations... Right, the word itself can be neutral. Right? God is said to be jealous of His people who rightly belong to Him. Joshua 24, 18. He is holy and jealous. But by adding the adjective bitter, we know that this is a bad thing. It's the, it's the same word used in chapter 3, verse 11, for the bitter water. But James is using it in a figurative sense here. He means having a harsh attitude. Right? Are you harsh towards others? Right? Are you concerned about their, their feelings? Are you concerned about their, their welfare? Or are you, are you self-centered? Are you self-focused? Look, brother, when a person's life is lived out based on human wisdom, they're naturally self-seeking. They're self-centered. Their own ideas, their feelings, their desires, their own personal standard is what they measure everything and everyone else by. It's not God's standard. It's their own. And if a person doesn't, doesn't personally fulfill them or makes them feel good, then, then that thing or that person is, is not good for them. That's what they say. That's what they think. Anything that, that threatens to upset the apple cart, to bring any kind of uh, disturbance in their life, threatens to dis- cause them discomfort or pain or, or anything that, that upsets their happiness is to be opposed and rejected. And this bitter jealousy, this bitter envy is directed to, to anyone and everyone that comes between them and their own personal glory. Does that sound familiar? How many people do we know in the world that you better not come between them and their goal? They'll do whatever they can to achieve that goal. How many people do you know that when they look at a, go into a group or go into a room, their first and primary evaluation is how can these people benefit me? They have that bitter envy. And if someone is recognized above them, they don't like it. 
And he keeps going. He says, not only is there, if there's bitter ambition, or sorry, bitter jealousy, there's selfish ambition. And this is the motivation behind that bitter jealousy. And it causes strife and contentiousness. Basically, it's extreme selfishness. Think about politicians, right? I think that's the, the one constant we would all, all agree in. And if you read even through the ancient Greeks, their idea and their thoughts about politicians, nothing has changed, right? We, we think about politicians and you look at that and it makes no difference, right? From a politician, they, they say what they want to say, right? They say, say one thing here, one thing there. The whole goal is to be elected, to, to, to become, uh, to, sorry, to, to, to gain that power. And then they'll do whatever they can to stay in power. Sadly, that selfish ambition drives even some in the church. Desire places, places of, of prominence. Look at others for what they can do for them instead of looking at others as more important than themselves. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in your heart. James says, look, if you have that, if that is evident in your heart, then don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. And he says, basically, don't deny the truth. The truth is that you don't have, world, you don't have God's wisdom. You're demonstrating God's wisdom. You may think you're, you're wise, but you're not. He says, don't boast arrogantly about having wisdom, about being a mature believer, when in reality you're, you're a self-glorifying person, not a God-glorifying person. And he says, don't lie, don't, don't claim to be a Christian, don't claim to have mature faith if there's no humility in your life. You're lying against the truth. The truth, once again, is, is the, the reality, the true nature of things as God sees it. God sees your heart. God sees your deeds. James says, don't lie. I read a story not too long ago about a man in Florida that he, he was pulled over by the police. And as the policeman got out of the car, he, he gunned, gunned it, hit the gas. He did a donut around the policeman and he took off. And the policeman gave chase and he evaded the police and he was gone. But that wasn't good enough for him. A few hours later, he called 911 and bragged about how he had gotten away from the police. And he said, I've passed four patrol cars and you still haven't caught me. Well, he was laughing. But he wasn't laughing the next day when they had traced the phone call to his cell phone and they showed up at his home and put him in handcuffs and put him in a police car. You see, he's boasting and bragging selfishly about what he's done. That's, that's the natural man, brethren. That's, that's what people in the world do. James says, look, if you're arrogant and boastful, don't lie. Don't, don't, don't think that you're actually wise. Don't think you're actually living by God's wisdom. Because boasting in your accomplishment is inherently selfish and evil. The world says if you can do it, boast about it. It's not boasting you can do it, Muhammad Ali. The reason we recoil is because we know in our hearts that it's not our strength that won the battle. It's not our, our intellect that won the battle. It's not our finances that won the battle. It happens according to the, the providence of God. 
wouldn't be for God, we wouldn't have health, we wouldn't have jobs, wouldn't have finances. We wouldn't live another day, as James says in chapter 4. Brethren, that boastfulness and that bitterness, and sorry, that boastfulness and that arrogance is a, is a desire to feel special around others, men and women alike. We have this sinful desire to be recognized. You want to feel good about yourself when you, when you compare yourselves to others. But all this ultimately is pride. It's the sinful desire to, to be ultimately the Lord of your life, to take all that glory to yourself. This kind of life habitually lived causes you and should cause you the question, do you really have a, a changed heart? Are you truly a Christian? Are you walking with the Lord, brethren? Is there evidence of, of boastfulness, of arrogance, of, of pride in your heart? Don't lie. Don't claim to be a Christian. Don't claim to be mature when this characterizes your heart. But James continues and he says, look, false wisdom, and in Greek they don't have quotation marks. And you can imagine James putting a, a quotation mark in verse 15. This wisdom, this false wisdom, this pseudo-wisdom, this, this earthly wisdom, he said, is not that which, is com which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. He says this wisdom, this false wisdom, it's, it's not from above. If you remember, James uses the same term in chapter 1. And he says that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So all good things come from God. So if, if the wisdom in your life, your thinking, produces, uh, uh, has a selfish ambition and a boastful heart behind it and is demonstrating this bad behavior, it's not really from God. James actually describes in the way he describes this, this wisdom is very pointed. He said this wisdom is earthly. It's earthbound. It's the opposite of heavenly. It's worldly. It claims to come from God, but it cannot come from God. As Paul says, as we read in 1 Corinthians, man on his own cannot understand God. It's limited. It's finite. This kind of wisdom is, is, is limited to the unregenerate humanity. This is the wisdom that everybody thinks, everybody says. It's common thoughts about everything. But it's not what God thinks. And this earthly wisdom permeates even the church. You see that in churches that, that they, they water down the gospel for pragmatism. They follow worldly ideas of organization and, and even use worldly ideas in their, in their attempts to evangelize the lost. You see this, this earthly, worldly wisdom in people in their relationships with each other. Philippians 3.19 says this about this worldly wisdom and those who, who practice it. It says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. They set their minds on worldly things. You see, it all begins in the mind. What we speak, James, is relating to this passage. It comes from what we think. 
this false wisdom is focused on the here and now. It's not, it's not living for eternity. It's living for what makes us happy. You talk to somebody in the world and they're going to do what makes them feel good because that's the pinnacle of what they believe. In other words, if it doesn't make you feel good, as if it doesn't fulfill you, then it has to be bad. That's the opposite of biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says that, you know, we live in a world that's fallen, that's full of sin and heartache and suffering. And as we walk with the Lord, we will face opposition. And that God's going to use trials in our lives to conform us to His image and make us mature. But then there's the blessedness that we have as well. The joy we have in Christ. But we also look forward, what, to the future day with Christ. That is our inheritance. That is our reward. But James says also it's natural. It's unspiritual. It's sensual. It's fleshly. The unredeemed man is is a natural person. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians, the, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He has no wisdom. It's humanistic. All of man's ideas are are grounded in a view of himself as good, and he measures all of life according to that standard. You see this in in psychology. Psychology in its basic form is is anti-God. Psychology says that man is good and that if we alter their behavior, then we've achieved something. It deals with the surface and not the heart. Let's talk about our feelings and our emotions. But, but what about the heart and the sin? Well, we, if we can't, deal, we can't deal with the heart and the sin, so we'll, we'll, we'll put you on drugs for a while so that we can continue to modify your behavior. It's a natural man-centered philosophy of life. You see that in, in evolution. There's never been a more a racist, prejudiced philosophy than evolution. If you read some of Charles Darwin's writings, and I did this week, he believed that anyone who was non-white was a savage, and that the the white ethnicity was the, the pinnacle of evolution. It's inherently racist philosophy, man-centered. God says we're all created in his image, that ethnicities are, are blessings. They were all equal at the foot of the cross. And then the church, we, we combine those ethnicities into one beautiful picture of how things should have been. But they're not because of sin. It's emotional. That natural wisdom is, is what makes me feel good. Look, years ago, I worked, for a, I worked in the sales, and I came back from my sales route got into our depot, and one of my co-workers, who I knew very well, he was complaining about another particular individual who got promoted. And he kept saying things like, oh, I've been here longer, and I deserve it. And I'm a better salesman, have a better record. I deserve that promotion, not him. And I just looked at him, and like I said, I knew him very well, so I felt appropriate saying this. And I said, well, brother, why don't you just go and talk to management and find out the things that you can improve on so that the next time there's a promotion, you will be qualified for that promotion. You, you'll be in line for it. And he just looked at me and he huffed and he walked off. He stormed out. 
You see, natural wisdom is, is fleshly. They're, men and women are ruled by their desires. They reason in their hearts that they, just because they want something, they deserve it. And if they don't get it, then you better not stand in their way. So it's natural. But James says, look, not only is it worldly, earthly, it's natural, but he says, look at this, it's demonic. Right? This false wisdom of this world is empowered and it agrees with and is supported by demonic activity. Now, demons are fallen angels who rebelled against God. They've been thrown down to this earth until Jesus Christ returns and then they'll be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. But while they're on this earth, they oppose the will and purposes and people of God. Why do you think there's, there's riots and disturbances and, and, and things of the like in this world? Right? There's demonic activity behind all of those things. The origin of that is satanic. Satan is the author of confusion. That's what he wants. He wants you to be confused. He wants you to, to look at the world's wisdom and, and God's wisdom and be confused. See, Satan loves to, loves to get as close as possible to truth. Why do you think we have Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians and all these heretical groups that teach a false and damning gospel? Because if Satan can confuse people, that's good. That's what he wants. If you look at Genesis chapter 3... And you look at Satan's conversation with Eve. Satan promised Eve wisdom. Satan said, you'll be like God. You'll understand the knowledge or you have the knowledge of good and evil. You know what it is. And when she looked at it, in fact, let me quote it. So that way you don't think I'm just making it up. Genesis chapter 3, she says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one, what, wise, she took from his fruit and she ate it. She gave it to her husband and he ate it. You see, that's Satan's lie from the beginning. You can be like God. You can be wise apart from God. You think all man's re religious works, his philosophy... They're all about truth or finding truth apart from God's revelation in the Scriptures. All of our educational institutions teach man's wisdom apart from God. You see, only the Holy Spirit and the church keep this world salted, as we could say. But there will come a day, you can read this in 2 Thessalonians, there will come a day when, when God removes the restraining agent and the church and the Holy Spirit's restraining power are taken away and the world is just left to its own ends and God sends a deluding influence and they, they believe the lie of the Antichrist. And James says, look, there's an outcome. Look at the outcome. Jealousy, selfish ambition, there is what? There's disorder in every evil thing. He goes back to the, the heart of the jealousy and the, the selfish ambition. He says disorder. This is a cause and effect relationship between the heart attitudes and the results. He's used this word several times already. He said disorder. It's used in verse, chapter 1, verse 8. 
says the double-minded man is unstable. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says that the tongue is a restless evil. Restless, unstable, disorder. That's what happens to a group of people where selfless ambition and jealousy exist. Why do you think there's divisions in a lot of churches? Selfish ambition, jealousy, envy. It's division. It's when people put selfish concerns over what is good for everybody as a whole. But understand, brethren, that 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. That's why we have order in our worship service. Right? We, we regulate that. Because we want it to be orderly. We want it to involve the, the mind as well as the emotions. A disorderly service of worship doesn't honor the Lord. And James says, not only is there disorder, but there's every evil thing. The word there for thing is, is practice. Greek is pragma. We get our word pragmatism. It's a deed or event, but it's every evil. And the word heard here for evil is not the usual word that you read for evil. It really gives the impression of good for nothing. The impossibility of anything good coming from it. So this worldly wisdom, nothing good can come of it because it's not from God. And only good things come from God. Look, there's an outcome of this false wisdom. When you see disruptions and riots and rebellion against authority and you, you see people hating each other and you, you read about injustice, it's all result of worldly wisdom, humanistic wisdom. Anarchy, hatred, all these things. It's because people have rejected God and His truth. They've embraced a philosophy that's man-centered. And humanistic wisdom can never produce anything good. James continues and he says, look, there's also wisdom from above. Verse 17, wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits and wavering without hypocrisy. He describes wisdom's good behavior. This is a wisdom, once again, that, that comes down from above. Remember, it's a gift from God. But he says, first of all, it's pure. This is the, the primary virtue that all the other ones are up against, that come out of. Pure means free from all vices. It's undefiled, uncontaminated. It's a moral purity that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and being cleansed by His blood. 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who has this hope, hope of eternal life, purifies himself just as he is pure. When you look at 1 John, you say, well, how can I be pure? Verse 7 of chapter 1, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin, continually cleanses us. And then in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're continually purifying ourselves as we, as we respond to the Word of God, respond to the truth, we repent of our sins. Christ is continually cleansing us, washing us. That's the purity that, that begins with a life that is exhibited when you have true wisdom. 
And then he says it's peaceable. It's desiring peace. It's ready at all times for peace. You want right relationships. Because you have a peace with God, you want peace with men. And he says it's gentle. It's courteous. It's respectful. It's kindly. You're thinking about the, the feelings of others. It's used to describe God and how He deals with us. God is our King. He's gentle and kind, even though He has reason to be severe. The idea is gentle and fair with others, even in the face of abuse. Gentle spirit and reasonable. Reasonable is easily persuaded. It's ready and willing to listen to others. You don't always have to have your own way. You're willing to cooperate when a better way is shown. You're not stubborn-hearted. It doesn't mean you're gullible. It doesn't mean you don't take a stand on the truth. But on preferential matters, you basically say, what does it matter? And James says it's full of mercy and good fruits. This is the opposite of every evil thing. Mercy is an attitude of compassion with those in distress, but it's a practical mercy. It's full of mercy. Good fruits are those things that are produced by that mercy. And James says they're unwavering and without hypocrisy. Unwavering is undivided, without vacillation. You, you treat everyone impartially. You look at everyone as a child of God. And we all know what hypocrisy is. It's without the mask. The Greeks would wear a mask in the theater. They were called hypocrites. You're sincere, you're genuine, without pretense. See, this wisdom is, genu- is demonstrated in your behavior. All of these things. And James ends with a very interesting verse. In the Greek, it's very wordy. <laughs> Even in the NASB, you can see it's wordy. The NIV does a good job of this, actually paraphrasing this verse. And, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is given a picture of the seed, the sower, the soil, and the fruit. The seed is godly wisdom. Verse 18 in the seed, he's referring back to verse 17 about the wisdom. But the wisdom... The seed whose fruit is righteousness. Wisdom produces righteousness. Right? That's the fruit. Those who are peacemakers, that's the sower. They make peace. That's their characteristic activity. They, they have a godly wisdom and they demonstrate that by sowing what? They, they sow righteousness. And they sow that righteousness in peace. And the, the point James is making is that Righteousness of God, that's right behavior according to God's word. Righteousness can only be produced in the life of the church if it's sown in peace. And if there's disorder and there's no peace, then it goes back to people who are living their lives in worldly wisdom. So James's challenge here is that we should produce righteousness. We should live lives of peace. Brethren, I have a friend who likes to pan for gold. He enjoys it. He goes out in the mountains, he pans for gold, and he takes his son and he finds all sorts of things. It's not my thing. You know, we all have our own, uh, own bents. Um, I've been panning before. And one of the things you have to look for, though, is fool's gold or pyrite. You know, it looks like gold and it's shiny and you get it in your pan and you're all excited. And then you, you start looking at it and you realize, oh, it's not gold. Brethren, there are two types of wisdom in this world. There's the wisdom of this world, earthly, fleshly, natural, demonic, and there's the wisdom of God. Wisdom that 
comes from God comes from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It comes from renewing your mind and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. And it, pray for that wisdom. Desire that wisdom. Because that wisdom produces peace. It produces righteousness in your life and, and in the life of the church. Brethren, live your life honoring Christ and seeking His glory and not your own. Remember, mature believers are peacemakers that love Christ and His people more than anything else. The question for you is, what type of wisdom do you exhibit? What kind of wisdom do you have? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how challenging it is this morning that help us to evaluate our own hearts. Father, we do desire to be peacemakers. We do desire to live according to your word. Give us wisdom, O Lord, to be able to apply your word to our lives, to to not accept the worldly mindset about everything, or how easily we are swayed. For, Lord, we are in this world, but yet we're not of it. Father, renew our minds in your word. Holy Spirit, teach us. Guide us into greater truth and, most importantly, a greater knowledge of you, our Lord Jesus Christ. For when we see you, everything else in this world pales. When we understand you, we understand true wisdom and and truth. We see things as they are and as the things as they ought to be. We see the world as it will be. Lord, we just thank you for your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.